<laughs> I wasn't ready. <laughs> I was busy playing with your son. I mean, worshiping the Lord. <laughs> Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, it's uh, with a bit of trepidation that I approach this subject that's before us today, and it's not my intention to bring division or to uh, cause controversy in the church, but I realize that the pro proclamation of this word today um, is inevitably going to accomplish that. It is, however, my duty and joy to proclaim to this group of people what your scripture says. It is my duty and joy to expose these people to the greatness of the God that we love who has saved us by his grace and to display to not only this church but also to the world um, the sovereignty of our loving God. And to this end, Father, we invite you by your Holy Spirit to inhabit both the speaker and the hearers of this word and to bring nurturing faith to each of us and though we may find these words grating and disagreeable that we would take the time to check and see is this truly the word of God and then may it have the effect of changing us and growing us and maturing us so that we love you more so that we worship you more rightly and so that we are bold in declaring your greatness to this end father we pray in the name of your son Jesus amen and this week in the news there was a man who was uh, convicted in Texas of uh, killing, shooting and killing 28-year-old uh, Garrett Foster in July of 2020. So what turned out was this Army Sergeant, um, Daniel Perry, uh, he, he drove his car through a stoplight and into a crowd. The crowd surrounded him. One of the people in the crowd, um, Garrett Foster, had an AK-47. And Perry was also armed and took his revolver and shot and killed um, Foster. What makes this interesting in the news is because Texas Governor Greg Abbott has condemned the verdict. He said he's going to work swiftly to bring a pardon to Perry. Um, and he said, and I quote, Texas has one of the strongest stand your ground laws of self-defense that cannot be nullified by a jury. So it's a, a curious thing because though he's been convicted of murder, he actually hasn't been sentenced. And in Texas, you, know, you not only have to be sentenced, but you also have to have the, uh, the appeal, the pardon group approve the pardon before it can go to the governor. And the governor apparently is just jumping over all of these normal safeguards. It's one of the privileges of power in the United States that the governors and, of course, the president, U.S. president, has the right to pardon criminals. Robert Spitzer, who's an expert on the presidency and professor of political science at the State University of New York, Cortland said, the president of the United States has the right to pardon pretty much anyone he decides he's going to pardon for pretty much any kind of offense. State governors also have pardon power within their jurisdiction of their particular state, but the president's power pertains to anyone or any place in America. At the end of his presidential term, Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich, and it was surely the most controversial pardon that he issued. Clinton issued a flurry of pardons at the very end of his presidency. Many of them did not go through the usual vetting process, as they say, where lawyers in the Justice Department examine various pardon claims. But Mark Rich was one example of a pardon that jumped over that process, and that raised suspicions suspicions. Mark Rich and his wife had close ties with Bill Clinton. They had raised money for his campaigns. The biggest problem with Mark Rich pardon really, I think, was the fact that he had such close associations with Clintons to begin with. So a pardon generally can occur any time in a president's administration, but they tend to happen at the very end, you know, when the president's literally walking out the door. They tend to to do that. And the, I guess there can be a lot of reasons. They tend to bump those issues, you know, kick the can down the road until the end, and then they're trying to just get things done before, the, but before they're done. But also, certain pardons can raise certain political questions, like it did in the case of, of Mark Rich. And in pardoning, the president has really no 
gain politically to do that. In fact, it can be, it, it can be working against him. He can lose a fair amount of esteem if he pardons certain people, like in the case of Mark Rich. But the president usually does that as he's walking out the door because it doesn't usually attack, attract the attention of the media because the media is focused on the incoming president. They don't spend too much time talking about what the outgoing president is doing. And it's, it's hard to imagine sometimes, you know, the whole justice in the, the pardoning process, you know, why some people get pardoned and other people um, get overlooked. It's hard to imagine why some people get a pardon and they don't deserve it. They're, they're guilty, they've been convicted, they, they're, they're literally getting what they deserve, and yet the, the president reserves the right to pardon such people. Um, we know that they have that authority. We, we know that they have that right. It's just hard to fathom why some people who don't deserve grace get grace when what they do deserve is justice. And so we would argue, well, that's not what we would do if we were in that situation. We can argue that it's not right to give them that pardon, that they don't deserve that pardon. But we don't argue the fact that the governor has that right, the president has that right, a king has that right, an emperor has that right. It's their privilege to pardon someone if they want to. Similarly, I think we're okay with the idea that God has the right to pardon people, to give certain people grace instead of justice. We know he has that right. Um, we don't know why or on what grounds he may choose to extend that kind of grace. But Really, the question isn't, does he have that right? Because we say, yeah, God has the right to dispense grace on whomever he wants. God certainly has the right, just like governors, kings, presidents, emperors have the right to give pardon. We'd say, well, God certainly has the right to give a pardon. The problem we have is that we don't think it's fair when God grants a pardon. We, we don't know why God would be considered just if he chooses to only offer his pardon to some. Because in our frame of mind, in order for God to be just, he has to at least offer the pardon to everyone and let us decide whether or not we're going to accept the pardon. And that's what we insist on when, when, when we talk about the sovereignty of God. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul's in the midst of this uh, discussion um, talking about that God's chosen people are safe. They can't lose their salvation because they are elect. God's chosen them. And he's been talking through chapter 8 that we are God's chosen people. We are safe. We are secure in our salvation. In fact, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But all of a sudden, there's a certain objection to this. And here's a case in point. Wasn't Israel God's chosen people? And aren't they now rejected by God? So if Israel is the chosen people of God and they're now rejected, can't we lose our salvation too? If, if, if they rejected the Messiah and they lost their favored status as the chosen people, couldn't that happen to us as well? And so... It seems to prove against Paul's point that you can't lose your salvation if God's chosen you because, case in point, Israel was chosen and they, they apparently fall away. They, they lose their salvation. And this objection then falls directly on a very key subject for us as Christians having to do with the sovereignty of God and God's sovereign choice of saving grace. Now, the people that God pitches his mercy upon, whether they're, they're Jews or, or Gentiles, makes little difference. When God chooses to, to grant his mercy on those that will be saved, it is done by his free choice, by his pardon. Um, salvation depends ultimately on God's will, on God's choice, and that remains true even in the church today. But, of course, this teaching draws some inevitable objections. You know, if we say that God saves who he wills, and that any man or woman's salvation is the result of God's favor and not that person's will. In the end, if you believe that, aren't you saying that God is unjust, that God is unfair, that God treats certain people unfairly? You know, in the process of choosing to save some, is he overlooking the others? Isn't he 
by that fact, choosing not to be kind to certain people? Does he, is he obligated then to treat everyone the same? Does everyone deserve equal treatment? And Paul answers that question initially by saying that we're all made of the same lump of clay. We all deserve equal treatment. And if we all got equal treatment, we would all be spending the same place in hell. That would be just. That would be fair. So again, it's not a question of what is just or fair. It boils down to a question of what is merciful. Because mercy implies that the one receiving this benefit uh, is getting something that he doesn't deserve. God does not extend his mercy to everyone. I mean, we obviously know that the angels that fell in their rebellion are not offered mercy. There's no uh, redemption offered for them. God is treating them justly. He's treating them fairly. They're getting what they deserve. And God could justly save no one. We would agree with that, right? Because we are all sinners and we all deserve his condemnation. So it would certainly be just of God to save no one. That would be just and fair. And, you know, conversely, you could say it would be just of God to save everyone. And as long as it was an acceptable manner, that would certainly be just and fair if everyone was saved. And yet, we know not everyone is saved. So it's, uh, it brings the question, does, is God obliged to show mercy to everyone equally? Does, does God owe us that mercy? Uh, Anselm said, you have failed to consider the terrible weight of your sin if you think that God owes you mercy. So the reason that we think God owes us mercy is that in the end, we don't really think we're all that bad. You know, we, we understand that the scripture says we are all sinners and that there's no one just, but really, we don't think that we're all that guilty and we're all that unworthy, maybe just a little bit, and we just need a little push, you know, to, for God to accept us. And that's why it angers us so much to suggest that God chooses some and fails to choose others because we think it would be totally unfair or unjust of God if he didn't choose me. We, we can't imagine that God would choose to pass us by. But if you looked at your sin the way God looks at your sin, you would, that, that whole concept would vanish before you. Uh, R.C. Sproul said, the doctrine of God's sovereign election is not an arcane item found rarely in obscure passages of Scripture, nor does it require the pursuit of a diligent scholar to uncover it. The doctrine of election appears on virtually every page of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. No section of Scripture sets it forth, however, more definitively or persuasively than Romans 9. We are by nature Pelagian. Remember we talked about some time ago, we talked about Augustine was arguing with the heretic Pelagian. Pelagian said that when Adam fell, original sin, it does not taint us. We are not affected by original sin. God creates a new spirit every time he creates a new being. And so it's totally up to human's free will um, to attain salvation of our own choice. And it is not by grace. And so Augustine argued with Pelagian. Pelagian was labeled as a heretic. And, and um, so uh, Sproul says, we are by nature Pelagian in that you think you're going to attain salvation through the exercise of your free will. We assume that we have the power to incline our hearts to Christ while we are yet in the flesh. Our natural hostility to the sovereignty of grace is not instantly, instantly cured by conversion which is why a majority of Christians still ride the horse of semi-Pelagianism and seek to escape the full implications of the doctrine of election. I struggled with the doctrine of election at least five years after my conversion, despite my godly and able professors who tried to explain the scriptures. The built-in resistance to the sovereignty of God's grace found a root in my soul, not until I was exposed to a careful treatment of Romans 9, that's where we are now, was I brought kicking and screaming against my will 
to an initial acquiescence of pure Augustinianism. Finally, as I studied the biblical text, I could only throw up my hands and say, I can fight this battle no more, and now I have to embrace this doctrine, even though I don't like it. When I was a seminary student, I had a card on my desk which had written these words. It is your duty to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you would like to teach. And that's where I find myself today. See, the question of God's sovereignty really pervades our study of the book of Romans, but especially in, in uh, Romans 8 and 9. And since this subject keeps coming up all through Scripture and the Word keeps reappearing, God's sovereign grace, God's choice, God's election. So since it's obviously there and you can't take the Word out of your text, the majority of Orthodox Christians believe in the doctrine of election but we mean very different things by that. We have different ways of explaining it away. Let's look now at Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul begins by expressing this supreme sorrow, and it's almost this oath that he's taking to say, I'm not kidding. I really feel this huge weight of, of anguish in my heart. I wish for my fellow brothers, Israelites, that they would come to Christ. And then Paul uses a very strong word here. He said, I wish I were anathema, cursed of God, cut off from his blessing. He is literally saying, I would accept damnation if my brothers, if Israel could be saved. I would accept this total destruction if in so doing, knowing that Israel would come to Christ. And he, he tells us about all these advantages that, that, that Israel has. He mentions adoption and glory and covenants and giving of the law and the service of God and the, and the promises. You know, we tend to think of adoption as being a, a New Testament novel idea, that we as Christians have been adopted. We spend a lot of time talking about being adopted like the eldest son. Really, it is an Old Testament term. And it goes, you know, way back that, to talk about all of Israel being adopted into God's family, all of Israel being God's children. It, it goes all through the pages of the Old Testament. Paul talks about glory. He's, he's talking about these, the, the visible manifestation of the supernatural highness of God. And, and we see pictures of that when God displays his glory in the, in, in the Holy of Holies at the, around the Ark of the Covenant. And speaking of covenants, you know, we have the covenant that God made with, with Adam, uh, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. These covenants, they, they come through the, 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 the Jews. There's not a Gentile uh, imagination. The covenants belong to them. He says the law belongs to Israel. You know, the law doesn't come from Hammurabi, you know, the law doesn't come from, from Babylonia or Phoenicia or Egypt. They had laws too. The laws that Paul's referring to directly come from God through Moses. Uh, then he talks about the Jews have been given the service of God. And the word he uses here is latria. It means the, the, the service in the temple, the, the, the act of bringing worship um, before for God. Uh, the promises. Now, the promises of the Bible don't just originate in Paul's mind or, or in the New Testament writer. These, these promises go all through the Bible. And, of course, the first promise that, well, the one only that I can think of is the, called the Proto-Evangelion, where in the, uh, the Garden of Eden, after the fall of man, we're in Genesis chapter 3, and God curses the land, and he says, and he says uh, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So this is a... This is the, uh, the, the seed of the promise of Christ's coming. This is the beginning of the first promise of redemption. It pertains to Jesus. See, so all of these things, 
adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, the worship of God, the promises have come to God. These have all come through Paul's kinsmen, through Israel. Now, these are not new in the new covenant. And so Paul is waited with tears for Israel's uh, rejection of Christ and conversely God's rejection of them. Verse 6. And again, the question that's before us is if Israel is the chosen people and they fail, they fall away, they're rejected, can we as God's chosen people also lose our salvation? So Paul says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they'd not yet been born and not done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So Paul reminds his readers, not everybody who's an Israelite is really an Israelite. Not everybody who's a Jew is really a Jew. Well, what does he mean by that? Uh, again, from Augustine, Augustine made a distinction. He says, in the church, you have the invisible church and the visible church. So you look around this room today, and you say everybody in this room is in the church. But we also realize not everybody in this room is saved. So from God's perspective, he sees those who are genuinely saved, the invisible church, and they are among the visible church. So Paul's making that same distinction among the Jews. Not everybody who's a Jew and saved is saved. There are, there are some who are not saved. So Paul's following that, that same kind of a distinction here between the invisible and the, and the visible. And just, be, just because you're born a Jew doesn't actually make you a son of Abraham. And we think, well, that's kind of gobbledygook, right? No, because Abraham had offspring who weren't Jews. And remember, the Pharisees confront Jesus, and they, they assume that because they're Jewish, that automatically means they're saved. They say, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, that's nothing. You know, God can raise up children for Abraham out of stones. But not every Jew is therefore a child of the promise. And he begins with Abraham, although this is not where his argument starts yet. And he says, Abraham is the per perfect example of how someone is saved. And he says, Abraham was not saved by circumcision. He wasn't circumcised when, when God saved him. He's not saved by the law. The law wouldn't even be written for 400 years after the fact. So Abraham's salvation is not through things that he did. How is Abraham saved? He is saved by faith. In other words, Abraham and every Jew up until Christ was saved the same way by looking forward in faith to the Messiah, just as we and every person since the coming of Christ looks back on the very same event at the cross, and we too are saved by faith in the one who was on that cross. And, he's, and that the point was that's how a person is and always has been. There's not two different ways of being saved. You look forward to the cross or you look backward to the cross, but it's the cross. It's the death of Christ on the cross and, our, and your faith in him, which makes one a child of the promise. But his real argument doesn't start until, I don't know where we are, around verse 7, I think. You know, he's, he, he's, he jumps to uh, uh, Abraham's children and... Uh, Abraham, you know, Abraham's story is given to us basically in uh, Romans chapter 4. We don't need to go back to that. But he, in, in now in verse 7 is where his argument actually begins. But he's saying, and he's saying, not everyone who's born from Abraham, not everyone who has Abraham's seed is a child of the promise. Case in point, Ishmael. So Abraham had a child 13 years before Isaac, who was Ishmael. Ishmael was the, was the son, his first son, but through Hagar, Sarah's slave. And so they would argue, naturally, 
Yeah, well, he was Abraham's seed, but he's not Sarah's. So he's descended from, he's only half Jew. So we, we'll just dismiss uh, Ishmael. It, his doesn't count because Ishmael is not the chosen. And here you have that word again, elect. God's choice, God's elect. Israel was not the chosen one, not the one of the promise, but in fact, another son who's born 13 years later is the chosen one. And so now we have to jump to the third generation of God's election or God's choosing. And we go to Rebekah's twin children, Jacob and Esau. And verse 10 says not only that, showing that he's still connecting his logical thought to the previous verse, not only that, Rebekah's children had one and the same father, their father Isaac. So he, there's a Jew of Jews, Jewish parents, Jewish mother, Jewish father. Definitely this, these two guys are going to be children of the promise, the elect. And he says, yet before the twins were born or done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she's told the older will serve the younger. This is a remarkably effective illustration that Paul's bringing up here because he's saying um, Jacob and Esau have the same Jewish parents. Each is a pure-blooded Jew. One is chosen, the other is not. One is elect, the other is not. One is a child of the promise, the other is not. And that kind of erases the whole objection to Ishmael, why he wasn't elect, chosen, or the, or the child of the promise. And here, the most important point here is the choice of Jacob over his older brother Esau. And Paul makes a very strong point here that this was done, this election, this choice, done before either one of them could do anything, before they had any act of, of the, that would recommend them to God or any act that would cause them to be considered sinner. They're still in the womb when God makes this choice. Here's the most powerful part of this argument. It's in verse, I don't know, 11, uh, that teaches this doctrine of election. He says, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, notice this, in order that God's purpose and election might stand. Why are we being taught this? Why is he bringing this up? To teach us about the doctrine of election. Now, again, I'm very much aware that we don't all accept this point. I am very much aware that when we get this far where we say, well, God chose one and he doesn't choose the other, immediately what springs up in our heart is, but that's not fair. It's not fair that God would choose one and not choose the other because in the choosing of the one, he's not choosing the other or he's choosing to not choose the other, something like that. Their, their election is based totally on God's will and not anything that they have done. It's his purpose and not their will. They didn't choose to save themselves. They didn't choose to be the elect. Our election is, is never found in us. Verse 16, so then it, it's not on him who wills or him who runs, but it's on God who shows mercy. The advocates of that teaching would say, but, you know, in, in the final in the, in the final thing, the final analysis, it really does depend on us to, to make the choice. In the final analysis, it really is my choice uh, to choose God. So it's not true that it's not of him who runs, the exercise, volition, action, or him who wills. It really is up to me. This verse is not true, they would say. Because you know, election flies in the face of, the, of this very suggestion, and here we get down to the root of it, it really rubs us because it rubs us wrong because it doesn't include free will, my own choice. It doesn't include my experience either because in my experience it was God offers salvation, here's the gospel, will you accept it or not? I said yes. So from my experience, Salvation entirely depended on my free will. So invariably, this whole argument about God's choice and God's election comes down to the subject of the free will of the creature. And here we have to be very careful because that whole concept of free will is not found in Scripture. 
That whole concept of free will has to do with humanism, our idea that the, that the human will is not enslaved to anything, let alone enslaved to sin. And that whole concept teaches that since we have no original sin, since it all depends on me and the exercise of my free will, that it is my free will which ultimately supplies my salvation in the end and not God's. And here we have to be very careful because when we say it, it depends on my free will and not on God's will, we are depriving God of his sovereignty and placing it upon ourselves. That ultimately I'm sovereign and God is not. Just in passing here, it's not important to advancing our argument here, but he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Um, notice what he doesn't say. If you've read the story about Jacob and Esau, he does not say, you know Jacob, the nice guy, the obedient one, the one who was faithful and, and worshipful. Why? Because Jacob was none of those things. Jacob was the epitome of not those things. In fact, his very name means supplanter or pretender or liar. That's a better description of Jacob. Does God choose Jacob because he's a nice guy? Absolutely not. He was not a nice guy. And then he says, Esau, I hated. Well, that's really where we don't like to hear because Someone's inevitably going to say, I don't believe that because the God I worship wouldn't hate anyone. He loves everyone unconditionally. Well, there's an element of truth to that. When we talk about the love of God, there's three forms of God's love. We talk about God's love of benevolence, God's love of beneficence, and God's love of complacency. We talk about God's love of benevolence. He does love all humans uh, in the sense of benevolence. He grants us a favor, he's kind to us, he gives us life, he gives us the stuff of life. We talk about God's beneficence, his love of beneficence. We're talking about that he acts particularly in goodwill. But what we don't have is this, what we call the love of complacency. And this is an intense, attractive love, the love that God has for his son. That's the kind of love that God has for us as his adopted children, this love that he has for Jesus, this intense, attractive love the love of complacency. Now, he's saying, basically, I love Jacob with this love of complacency, this winsome uh, choice of loving, but I didn't love Esau that way. Esau is still loved. He's loved in the sense of um, benevolence, probably not beneficence, but, but there's a contrast here between the way God loves. He's using the same word. He's not saying that God's got this seated a hatred, this disgust towards Esau. He's just saying he doesn't love Esau the way he loves Jacob. And you remember when Jesus, and where are we, John? Uh, I'm sorry, I can't pull it up. Uh, or Jesus, I can't get the verse to you just off the top of my head. Jesus says, unless you um, hate your father and mother, your brother and sister, your son and your daughter, and your own life, more than me, you're not fit to be my disciple. Remember that? He's not actually saying that you can't follow him unless you hate, in the sense that we hate, this sense of disgust, that you have to be disgusted towards your parents and your wife and your children. That's not what he's saying. It's a comparison type of love. So he's using that contrast between benevolent love, beneficent love, and love of complacency. So um, that's the, that's the compar comparison uh, there. Um, it's not John, it's, uh, it's Luke 14-something. I can't, I can't remember. Anyway, moving on. Um, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, that's where we end up, right? If God chooses one and not the other, that's not just. It's not fair. So Paul anticipates that. Is there injustice on God's part? And what's his answer? No way. It's not possible, by no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And again, those same two objections pop up here. They pop up not only in our minds, but certainly in the pagan community, because it doesn't deal fairly with free will 
And worse yet, at least from my consideration, it seems at least to imply a certain darkness to God's exercise of his free will. It's, it's at least challenging the integrity of God, that, that he would be unjust, unfair, that he's not dealing honestly like we would if we were in that position. And again, Paul is reminding us of the absolute sovereignty of grace. If God is not sovereign, he's not God. Now, when we consider the sovereignty of God, again, we talk about three specific realms, area of God's sovereignty. And two of these three we have no problem with. The third one we argue viciously against. The first one has to do with God is sovereign over the universe. You know, God created the universe out of nothing. He is sovereign. He's completely in control over the planets, over nature, over history. We talk about that kind of sovereignty over nature, over the universe. We're okay with that. No arguments going there. The second has to do with God's sovereignty. Um, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. Uh, his that over the domain of, uh, of law, that because God is God, he has the right to require from his creatures whatever action, behavior, worship, whatever he wants from us, he has the right to require that from us. Again, no arguments there. But where we run into trouble is this third domain, and that's the, that's the sovereignty of God's dispensation. What's the word I'm looking for? No, disposition of grace. Thank you. We have a problem with God's disposition of grace, and probably 90% of us object to that whole concept of God's disposition of grace. And to, to most of us, then, God is not sovereign over the area of the exercise of his grace, because if he were he would show equal treatment to all people. He would be merciful, the same way merciful to everyone. And if he's not, the bottom line is that he's not sovereign. He doesn't have sovereignty over this reign. And that is expressed in our hearts when we, when we say, you know, it's not fair. Or imagine that, you know, that you were overlooked in... In, in, in this dispensation of grace, and you would say, that's not fair. You, you owe me grace. I deserve grace. You owe it to me. You owe it to me as much as anybody else. By definition, if God owes you something, it's not grace. God has, because he is sovereign, the absolute right to give grace to anyone he wants to, just like the president has the right to offer a pardon, grace, to anyone he wants to. Now, throughout all this epistle of the Romans, Paul's been building this case for us, that we are all sinners, that we've all turned away from God, that we all have no hope of standing before his judgment, that we, that we have this holy and righteous judge, and if we are to stand before him and be treated with justice, with fairness, we would all go to hell. But the testimony is of the gospel is there's this wonderful offer of, of grace that God has provided to us. And so Paul goes on to explain how we, we receive this grace through being adopted into his family and how the righteousness of Christ is, is transferred to us. Not only are we forgiven our negative value, which would only make us morally neutral. The forgiveness on the cross would only make us morally neutral. It does not make us holy. What makes us holy is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. So Paul's been building that case for us. And finally, he says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, and not by works, lest anyone should boast. God, in his sovereign disposition of his grace, interrupts our life, our rebellious life, and he chooses to open our eyes and our hearts. While we're, we're dead in our sin, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he quickens us, brings life from the death, and he changes the disposition of our heart. That happens first. And then what? And then this Christ, which we found at one time to be 
so repugnant. We were completely disinterested in him. Now we find him to be the sweetest, most winsome thing. We run to his grace. And yes, at that point, we choose, we exercise volition to accept him, to receive him into our lives. We embrace him. We trust him. But we do that because God's grace has first come into our life. He has given us that, that pearl of great price. Now, if God does that for you, is he actually obligated to do that for everyone? If the President of the United States chooses to pardon one and release him from, from prison, is he then obligated to release everyone from prison? And you say, well, well no. Why not? Because they're not getting grace, they're still getting justice. Ah, oh, haven't we just landed on it? Esau, who was not chosen, did not receive an unfair treatment. He got justice. He didn't receive mercy, but he got justice, right? So no one can say, I was not treated fairly. The elect get grace, the non-elect get justice. Nobody gets injustice. And the reality is, you know, we, we're asking God to do the wrong thing. We say, God, you have, to, you have to treat everyone fairly. If you look in the Bible, you find that that's not true. God does not treat everyone the same throughout the whole Bible. He doesn't treat everybody the same way. Because if he did, we would all go to hell. Why doesn't he send us all to hell? Why are some saved and some not? In either case, they still serve a declaration to the, God, to the glory of God, whether they declare his glory through his mercy and his love or whether they declare his glory through his justice and his holiness. The end result is the same. God is glorified. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will, let me repeat that. It does not depend on human will, nor human exertion, but on God who shows mercy. And your, another translation may say it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but on God who shows mercy. So here Paul is setting forth this doctrine of election in a very clear way, and he's saying it does not depend on your exercise of your free will. You have certainly heard it, and perhaps you have even said it, that God is sovereign right up until, right up until and until uh, my free will. God's sovereignty ends where my free will begins. I hope you've never said that, because that's blasphemy. Begin, it suggests that God is limited in his sovereignty by my sovereignty. God can only do what I let him do. He can only save me if I let him save me. The reality is we all rejected God. You do have a free will. This is what your free will does. Your free will always chooses what you think is in your best interest. And when you're not a Christian, you're not interested in Christ. You're not interested in salvation, and you don't care about judgment. So you will act according to what you believe to be in your free will, your best interest, and you will always choose not God. It's not that you don't have a free will. It's that your free will is so corrupt by sin, you would never choose God unless he first interrupts that by the awakening in your heart of the Holy Spirit. Romans 19 contains both a negative and positive teaching on this subject. Negatively, we're told that salvation does not come by human desire or human effort. and Neither is it by your, your will or your personal attainments. And then positively, we are told that salvation comes from God. And here's the same words, the words will or desire or uh, and then he says the effort or run. Again, he's, he's including volition and exertion, things that you, the exercise of your will and the act of your, uh, of your behavior. 
And since it is not according to the exercise of your free will, nor by the exertion of your behavior, then it is not true, as we have often heard, and I'm ashamed to say I have said many times when we make reference to somebody being saved that they're seeking God. They weren't. God was seeking them. Or that I was saved because I asked Jesus into my heart. I've used that a lot, but it's not technically true. And I was resisting Jesus coming into my heart until the Holy Spirit interrupted, until the Holy Spirit gave me life. And there's nothing that you can do, the act of inviting the Lord into your heart, whatever, no act that you can do which then obligates God to dispense mercy or to, to grant you salvation. It, again, it's true that you do exercise your faith. You have to exercise your faith. You, there is a choice to be made. There is a life to be surrendered. There's that volition and exertion. There's the seeking to be done. My point is not that we don't do these things. My point is all of these things are a result of and follow the new birth that comes within us according to the mercy which God has already poured into us. Robert Haldane, he wrote, uh, it's true indeed that believers both will and run, but this is the effect, not the cause of the grace of God being vouched safe to them. And finally, there's always going to be someone who argues this point and they want to bring scripture up and they'll say, well, what about... Uh, what about John 1.12? John 1.12, doesn't it say, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know what? That's exactly what that text says. But if you'd read the next verse, you'd find out the context at which Jesus said, or where, this is, uh, where John says this, he says in verse 13, Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So he puts it in the right order. That first there is election, and secondly the rebirth, and third faith accompanied by repentance, and then lastly adoption into the family of God and all those other benefits. The point is, even those texts actually affirm God's sovereign choice. They don't affirm the free will of man. Every effort to either deny the doctrine of election or to elevate our own free will is ultimately a, a, a slap in the face of God because you're denying God's act of free will. Here's the truth. Everyone is saved by the exercise of free will, but not your free will. It's God's free will. And whether you put that in a really sophisticated way or whether it's just placed rather crudely in the final analysis, if you think you helped God save you, then Jesus is only partly the savior of sinners. And God left the ultimate decision in your salvation in your hands, not his. And that is precisely the conclusion that Paul will never allow us to come to. It is an offense to the clear teaching of the Bible. It's an offense to all that our Savior did at such a terrible cost of the cross. We did not choose God. He chose us. And every Christian knows that, whether you agree with it or not. When you're on your knees before God, you know Unless he had interrupted, broken into your life, you would never have chosen him. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, he said that he admitted that when he was becoming a Christian, he thought he was doing it all himself. A bit of reflection, however, immediately disabused me of that idea. I like that word. It was God who was at work in me, and he had not worked in, and had he not worked in me, I would never have come to Christ. God opened my heart respond to the message. I did not open it myself. You know what I'm telling you? I know we don't all agree with that. And every one of us started out thinking that it was all of me. Most of us grow out of that as we begin to know God and understand his greatness and his sovereignty. 
Because an election in the final analysis is like a dagger in the heart of our, our pride, that we accomplish this ourselves, that we have something to congratulate ourselves for, because unlike our stupid non-Christian friends, we at least were smart enough to accept the offer of salvation. We at least we're better off than the other multitudes around us who don't know of God's love. But the reality is, had not God first pitched his grace upon us, we would not be different from the multitudes around us who were utterly careless about salvation. They could not care about their position before God or Christ's death on the cross utterly uncaring about the fact that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our lives, completely unaware and uncaring. Had God not first pitched his grace upon us, that's where we would be as well. It's an offense to our pride. It's, a, it's an offense to our sense that the implication to being that we are truly helpless without God breaking in. And that's why this doctrine is so spoken of, even raged against, because Fundamentally, it challenges our sense of pride. One last time from R.C. Sproul, and I'll close. I do not w want to be harsh. I understand how difficult this doctrine can be and how much baggage we carry into the discussion of it. If you're hanging on to your semi-Pelagian views of election, get rid of them. Your theology is undermining the sovereignty of God his grace, and the sweetness of his mercy. We do, we do that when we want to exalt our decisions above his, and it is the very essence of sin. We have to bow before him and acquiesce not only to his sovereignty of his grace, but to the goodness of the sovereignty of his grace. Let's pray. Again, Father, I don't mean to stir up controversy. I realize that most people who've just heard this message think I'm a t total idiot. And my intention is not to sway them to one systematic theology or one leader over another. I am just committed to teach what your word teaches, and I am fully persuaded that what we talked about today is biblical and that it exalts your greatness and it minimizes the greatness of man. I know that, and I know that's why it's so hard to accept. I know where I would be, Father, had you not interrupted my life and breathed life into my heart so that when I heard the gospel, I then could accept it and embrace it and then choose you and run to you and find you sweet and winsome. And at that point, I was drawn to you like a moth to the flame. I pray, God, that as we ruminate on these words, as we reread them this week, the end result is that we declare what a great God who has such great love for us. I pray that it changes the way we do evangelism so that when we set out to share our faith with others, we begin not with clever words or carefully designed presentations, but we, get, we begin with earnest prayer. Holy Spirit, please give them life so that when they hear these words, they will accept them and embrace them. For it does not depend on me. It does not depend on my will or my effort, but on the grace of God. And this is my declaration. In Jesus' name, amen.